0: Caught offside with Andrew Gunling and JJ Devaney. Oh yes,
1: caught offside. Suburbs of New York City, apartment in Brooklyn, New York. and Gunling and JJ Devaney, what's up, brother?
2: Hey man, how are you?
1: Doing well. Doing very well. Lots to talk about on this podcast today, my friend.
2: This is a great podcast. I think this is a a meaty yet sustaining podcast. One where you finished listening to the podcast and you thought that was edifying and satisfying.
1: Going to do a lot of things on here. Obviously, we're going to talk about the uh, the FA Cup, which took place over the weekend. And then the, I guess, rematch that occurred earlier today and what it meant for uh, the top four trophy as Arsene Wenger once termed it. Uh, So we'll talk about those things. La Liga's title race took a really surprising turn over the weekend. We will talk about the ramifications of Barcelona dropping out of the race and what that may mean for a certain manager. Uh, Other big games from over the weekend. Harry Kane says uh, or asks Tottenham to leave. We will, of course, get into that. And then, J.J., a really interesting – this summer, obviously, we've talked about is going to be – it's the summer of of soccer and the summer of U.S. men's soccer – Uh, the calendar is loaded up. So we kind of thought that this was a good time to dive in a little bit uh, to a book that was just released today. I believe Um, it's called, what happened to the US MNT: the ugly truth about the beautiful game. And it was, uh, there were two authors, one of the authors of that book, Steven Mandis, he's going to join us because we have a lot of questions about U S soccer, where we're at, how we got here, the missteps from along the way, Um, there's a lot to get into. And the book is fascinating. And it's such a deep dive into essentially the problems with American men's soccer, and how those problems can be identified, fixed, addressed. So um, when I saw that book was being released today, I thought it would be an interesting thing. I, I know how a lot of our listeners obviously are obsessed with US soccer. So we thought that would be an interesting kind of like you know like a little pathway into the summer that's to come so that that should be a fun conversation with Stephen mandis a little later on in the podcast
2: yeah looking forward to that just before we get into the the main part of the podcast andrew i i do want to say that there was a big reaction to your andy in the dumpster uh piece from last week's podcast where you you told the harring tale of you being in a dumpster as an intern yeah and um you know a lot of people went deep and they went they, they took my invitation on board to do a Brendan Rogers style to John Terry inspirational poem. Um, so I just want to read a few. Um, actually, I only want to read one. The, the winner was The Ballad of Dumpster Andy by Justin Ring, which arrived this morning. Um, so I just want to give you a little a little flavor of that before we start the podcast proper, if, if you'll allow me. Yeah, please. Uh, the effort that went to, into this, it's, it's Woody Guthrie. I, I imagine this to Woody Guthrie-style uh guitar accompaniment the ballad of dumpster andy don't wear your good clothes he said as he walked away it was my first ever internship earning credits no take-home pay want to be on the radio reading ads and plotting carts got to do the grunt work that breaks a weaker man's heart had visions of late nights getting coffee for harry Callis. instead i showed up to work today through the looking glass like alice he said get in the dumpster we need you there boy get in the dumpster it's not hazing or a ploy get in the dumpster i don't care what you smell get in the dumpster in the august philly hell get in the dumpster as the in the muck in the mire as a tottenham fan i know you're used to it being on fire there i was in an iron coffin weak old gino's wrappers in my lap don't know much but i'm sure bob costas never had to put up with this crap that is brilliant it's beautiful there's more verses to it, but I, I won't. I'll just leave it. at. Oh, that. there's more.
1: Yeah. But I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. Justin Ring, you've outdone yourself. Fantastic. I saw a bunch of them. I wish I could shout out everybody. A lot of people answered the call, JJ, and really went in on my adventures in dumpster diving.
2: Yeah. It's amazing how the uh, vision of you in your most humiliating moment of your young career is uh, inspirational to everyone. I, I think you're a uh, you're a bootstraps kind of up and come and dig himself out of the dumpster kind of guy.
1: I mean, really though, what are you going to do? Like, you know, <laughs> if you're told to do it and it's an internship, like I'm not, I'm it's, some people I think have that personality of like, what are you kidding me? No, like that, that is not me in those situations. I'll be honest. I would have said yes to pretty much anything. They could have had me do almost anything. All right.
2: <laughs> steady on. Not anything. Come on. There are limits not a single limit. No, and I get you know what I get what you're saying because uh you know part of your brain and I know it comes from your parents are are quite similar to mine about earning your corn, about earning you know the right to be there. And 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 I suppose in our industry sometimes menial tasks are part of that. Um so so good on you Andy. You're an inspiration to America. I I mm. want to say that. How kind of you. Uh
1: let's talk now JJ about an inspiration to England. <laughs> as the FA Cup will reside in
2: Leicester City. What a wonderful moment for these Leicester Foxes. That's right.
1: In the battle of a normal club against the Super League side, it is the Normies who come out on top. Leicester City. Oh, not an amazing game, but I'll say this about it. We have spoken at length on this show at various points over the last 16 months about how uh, it's great to have soccer present, but it is missing something with fans not there. And JJ, just the mere fact that the goal was celebrated the way it was, the scenes in the crowd, I know it wasn't a huge number of fans. It was a small number in a cavernous, enormous stadium, but I'll never take fans' presence at a soccer game For granted, again, they make a world of difference. That in itself made the match worth watching.
2: I I totally agree with you, Andrew. And I'd like to to change the uh, football is nothing without fans kind of mantra a little bit and say football is something, even with a few fans. It made all the difference. Now, it was a bad game and a game Chelsea fans will want to forget because Chelsea were not good. Their manager overthought things. Uh, Reese Williams as a third center back to to guard against the pace of Jamie Vardy, who really didn't get a sniff all game. Um, that was a mistake, surely a mistake, but, um, but it was amazing. And when Telemans hit that rocket, I mean, it was a goal worthy of winning a cup final too. Um, that rocket into the top corner and the crowd just went nuts. And I, it was interesting. I was watching the championship playoff yesterday and one of uh, the Barnsley manager remarked how, 4,000 fans made it sound like 28,000 fans. And that's absolutely true of what happened in Wembley. A small amount of fans still made such a huge amount of noise and created such an amazing atmosphere. And I don't know about you, Andrew, but this game, uh, the fans certainly helped it. I don't think I'd view it the same way if there weren't fans there. But this game made you feel good about football again. There's been a month where we've been kind of very introspective looking into the way the game is run and the direction in which the game is going. And this brought us back to what football is really about. Um, I'm not going to pretend that any Premier League team, certainly not a Premier League team that's that's lasted as long as Leicester have, are a minnow, because they're not. Mm-mm. But they are a smaller team in the context of, of world football and even of English football. And it was so nice to watch this game, to watch this victory, and kind of reroot yourself in why you love the game there, there was a lot of emotion out there and it wasn't just Leicester City fans that were feeling it
1: no no certainly not uh it was fun like you said even even on a day where the the game itself was not necessarily up to snuff it was still an enjoyable watch um it's funny in in talking about the game a couple of things first off what you said is interesting because uh, I've heard that about you know the, the criticism of playing Reese James the way that they did um however like it kind of worked. I mean, you yourself just said that Jamie Vardy was essentially neutralized in that game. The only goal that was scored was Yuri Tielemans off a turnover from about 35 yards out. Like, if you know, they, Leicester didn't have, it wasn't an abundance of chances. Defensively, Chelsea were set up. Now, if you're, if you're saying that it slowed Chelsea down going back the other way um, in attack, then I, I, I would, I, I suppose I would grant you that. Yeah, but Andrew, but, take, but take, like Leicester I mean, for that to be the only goal, I can't necessarily say that. And you're not the only person I've heard say that. I heard Craig Burley talking about on ESPNFC that it was a mistake. But defensively, Chelsea looked pretty sound.
2: Yeah, but think about it. Think about it this way. <laughs> defensively, they look sound. Come on, Andrew. Uh, what do we talk about when we talk about this Chelsea team? The free flowing attack that wasn't really there. Now, it was Timo Werner. You know, he, he carved out a few chances for himself, certainly in the first half. Um, but, you know, it wasn't the Chelsea that we're used to. And and, and think of it this way in, in terms of numbers. Reese James, Thiago Silva, Rudiger, Azpilicueta, Marcus Alonso, and then Kante. That is half your team, more than half your team. That's 60% of your team, including the goalkeeper, are defensive-minded players against a low-block Leicester. You know, and and I, I'll say this again. I noted it in the World Cup in 2018 when, when Werner was brought over... Um, over Sane, and we all questioned that one. And we saw how against teams like uh, South Korea, uh, Leicester or Leicester, excuse me, Germany struggled against the low block. I mean, Leicester City fell into a low block, especially when Johnny Evans went off. And you just thought, why isn't there a Christian Pulisic on the field quicker? Why wasn't there a Kai Havertz on the field quicker? You know, a bit of craft, a bit of guile was always going to be the undoing of Leicester, and and it nearly happened. Chelsea threw the kitchen sink at them. There was that. I mean, Leicester technically scored two goals in this game. First was the Yuri Tielemans goal, and then the the goal, which was celebrated like a goal, which was the reversed VAR decision. Uh-huh. Um, this is a brilliant, brilliant uh video of a a beer garden in Leicester and the celebrations when the uh decision is reversed. It's just like almost like winning a penalty kick competition or a bicycle kick has gone in. So um, so yeah, but but that was the game and and um uh, you know, Leicester definitely rode their luck. I, I have to say one of the great FA Cup final saves, mm-hmm. uh, one of the great saves I've ever seen was Casper Schmeichel from Mason Mount, the left-handed save um, from the volley. I mean, you expected the net to bulge. For him to be able to adjust his feet, put his hand out and and save that ball, and it, it sounds ridiculous for a player who won a, a Premier League in 15-16 with Leicester and is so accomplished for his country as well for Denmark, but I honestly think that was the game where, for many of us who grew up with his father, I stopped thinking in terms of his dad. I didn't think in terms of his dad when he made that save. What? He is a fantastic. You're, he's no longer Peter's kid. That's no, not for me Casper. anymore. Yeah, at thirty three or whatever it is, yeah. he is no long for- enough. Yeah, but seriously, um, I think it was Adam Crafton of the Athletic tweeted something. I always think about. And he criticized himself. I know it's wrong to do it, but I always think about his dad. And I did too for years. Um, but he rose above it on 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 Sunday. And as if there was any doubt, he's a brilliant goalkeeper in his own right. That save, Andrew, is... I, wa- I watched it back several times just on, on YouTube on the replays because it was a brilliant save. It's funny because for me, the defensive
1: play of the game was may have been a complete accident and a mistake. Look, Cesar Azpilicueta has a wide open header at the back post and Timo Werner just like flicks it away from Azpilicueta. It's not really Werner's fault in the first time. Right. Like it's his job to attack that, but like Quetta is lining up a sure thing goal, and Werner just flicks it off its path, and Esplueta's head then kind of goes flailing, and it's like Werner then realizes what he did, and he sort of looks up to the sky and think, "Oh my God, I just like I just made the defensive play of the game for Leicester here in and, this situation,"
2: and and that makes it a different game, but of course, you know uh, everything that happened. I mean, the game itself, you know, there's there's probably no point talking much more about the actual game, right? Uh, uh, because it was really only an event for the last twenty five minutes, or at least when Tielemans buried that shot. Um, there's, there's larger context to talk to To talk about and to and, and one of them is probably Brendan Rogers. And to show the character We had to show big character today We've shown wonderful character this week I think you've seen the real character in the team Today really showed and demonstrated again the character Good character Look that drop uh, was born out of, of good fun At the things that Brendan says Tremendous character But you have to say Andrew he deserves this, and I think now he's he's been somewhat validated south of the border. And I know that's unfair. I know he won promotion with Swansea, and and he has a very he's very highly spoken of by most uh, most players who he's, he's dealt with. But I do think that all those trophies in Scotland, the double treble and things like that, are qualified by well, it was in Scotland with the biggest team in Scotland, and now it kind of. Winning an FA Cup with Leicester brings a, a gravitas all of its own. I don't know if you agree.
1: Yeah, I certainly do. I mean, look, his name, anytime a marquee opening occurs, like his name is always one of the quickest to be brought up. That's not by accident. I mean, he he is highly thought of. You know, there's quirks to him that at times dent his reputation because he like, you know, even in moments when he's trying to be a good guy. Like we, we talked about the, the story from last week of him inspiring uh, who was it? The janitors to move boxes, these you
2: boxes, like, your job is one of the most important at the football club,
1: right? So he does these things that sometimes turn him into a bit of a punchline, but um, I don't think that's taken away from the greater context of the manager that he is. I think everybody thinks highly of him and you're right. It's nice that he now has a trophy to go along with that in England, um, but had they lost this game, I don't think, at least for me, it would have changed my opinion of him.
2: No, it wouldn't, but it does make a difference for you to be able to say, Brendan Rodgers, we, we'll get to it later, whether they finish fourth or not remains in the balance, but even if they finish fifth, if they finish outside the top four, fifth, uh, and in FA Cup, silverware, and that amazing day for Leicester City, that is that is validation in my book.
1: Yeah. I, so, I don't know. I guess I, I half agree, half disagree. I think it's nice for him. It's nice for the fans. You know, it's certainly something for him to, to point to at the end of his career, if we're talking about legacy comparisons, but I don't know. I kind of stand by what I said that even if they lost, I still think of him as a top tier manager. Um, it's interesting, JJ, after the, uh, after the game, one of our, our closest friends, uh, Andy May, who has been on this podcast many, many times, um, He is, as any longtime listener of this show knows, is a a diehard Leicester City supporter. And he was there Uh, and he sent you and I uh, after the game, he sent us an audio message with just like his kind of like three minute long stream of consciousness of everything he was feeling. And among the stream of consciousness was a comment he made that was interesting to me where he he almost snuffed off the top four completely and he he, I wish I had the message in front of me so you could actually hear his tone when he said it. But he said, you know, this is this is everything I could care less about top four.
2: But he um, even compared it to the quarterfinal. He was, I know he was working, and he did make the comparison about being a supporter now and not working for BT Sports makes such a difference. There's he can enjoy it more. Mm-hmm. But he did say that even the quarterfinal against um, Sevilla was it? Uh, I can't remember Sevilla or Atleti uh, in fifteen sixteen or sixteen seventeen like you can take all that and it's fine, but this was the biggest day for him. And that top four wouldn't come close to, to touching this, achieving that. And I do think there's something in that. Like, how can you watch what happened on Saturday and not see how special days are like this. And as much as it is a huge achievement in the top four an important achievement and more important achievement, a financially more important achievement, the drama, the feelings that happen in a one-off final like that, especially when it's your first time winning it and the history of Leicester losing those finals in the 1960s, like how could you look at that and, 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 and not, um, not see how amazing it was or important or, 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 or understand why a fan like Andy May would say, yes, this is better than a, in a very, very high league finish.
1: Well, first of all, I'm not saying I don't get it. Uh, I do get it. I don't know that I agree if it were my own
2: club um but i think for different clubs ah uh, jesus christ your own club would absolutely take it uh, they'd take a day like sunday andrew any day over top four at this point i mean in the shape you think they're so? in you yeah. think so you 100%. think they would
1: rather finish sixth and win the fa cup than finish fourth right. champions league and i don't i don't know that i agree with that
2: i think tottenham supporters so starved as they are of, of silverware would absolutely take that yes
1: Um, I mean, look, if I could, Tottenham were in a cup final, this just a a few weeks ago against Manchester city in the league cup. If I had my choice between that or top four, that's the
2: league cup, take the FA cup. Imagine that, you know, a cup competition, like the FA cup. I I honestly believe they would. I, I, I can't, I think it's just, you know, there's this vortex that the premier league is. And I understand it from a prestige and from a money standpoint that your, your top four finish and where you finish in the table is now BB all and everything. And I know the FA cup since probably the year 2000 and United, not defending their title instead, going to the world club cup. I know it's diminished. I understand all that, but moments like this are, are, I don't know. It it, it reminded me of what football is all about and what it's meant to be about. And, um, And I know that's a romantic point of view, but it's one Andy really articulated to us in his voice message.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I get it. What I was going to say is I understand it specifically for a club like Leicester, because for whatever, you know, the the incredible nature of what they did in 2015, 16, um, it was amazing. It was something that will never be forgotten. Um, But there is part of me that if I were looking at it from the perspective of of a Leicester City fan, I feel like. Like, I wonder if they feel that those outside of Leicester think of it as a fluke. And in going about this now and a few years later, uh, with still some of the core of players still intact from that run, now going out five years after that or whatever it is now, I think it's five years, and winning this trophy, that it's almost like a revalidation of what they did back in 1560.
2: I, I think, yeah, I, I think it, it shows progress. I think it shows how well-run the club is. I think it shows, is what you talk about um, the core of the team being there. Well, I mean, the core of that team was Kante and Mares as much as anyone. They're not there anymore, but the recruitment's been so good. They lose Harry Maguire in one se- season, and they're confident in what they've done with Soyuncu to bring him in, and, and he's been a brilliant replacement, albeit he's been out of form and injured this season. Uh, look at Fofana I mean what an absolute find how is it Manchester United haven't found Fofana like Leicester are doing things that even the bigger clubs don't seem to be capable of doing Castagna Wilfred and Didi like I think their recruitment has been absolutely brilliant these well, last few years you
1: can you can make a case that they're the best run club in England right now
2: what, what you absolutely 100% can
1: ESPNFC, I mean to, to what you're speaking to they tweeted that Leicester City sold Conte, Drinkwater, Mares, Maguire, and Chilwell and yeah. used that money to buy Iheanacho, Ndidi, Madison, Soyonchu, Evans, Pereira, Tielemans, James Justin, Castagna, Fafana. Leicester's recruitment is on point is what they said. I mean, that's that's tremendous yeah. what they did there.
2: It uh, really and is. Not,
1: and not every club can do that. I mean, look, I witnessed it firsthand um, with Tottenham, with the Gareth Bale money. You know, some of that came came good for them but much of it was was wasted terribly
2: but but you don't um, even have to go back that far look at what your other north london rival has been doing look at arsenal some of their recruitment has been absolutely dreadful the past decade so uh, they're boxing clever um again I, you know i don't like to i i look at the monstrous tv uh, tv money that um that comes into premier league clubs now so i don't want to give them you know, over-inflate what this is. This is not Kidderminster Harriers. By the same extension, you know, they're not buying from Real Madrid. They're not buying from Inter Milan. They're buying from Genk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're buying from the French League. They're buying from their own league, and, and they're buying sometimes, in the case of Madison, from the championship um, or a championship club, more often than not, in the case of Nards. They've been, they've been very, very clever.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say who would you say is in that class of best run right now?
2: Uh, prior to this season, Liverpool—they—they've been extremely well run uh, prior to the, the COVID season. There's no question. Um, I think Crystal Palace have been fairly well run, although with Roy Hodgson leaving today, we wonder how that's going to hold up. Some of the rumors are Frank Lampard's coming in, so I'm not sure that's the best decision to make. Wolverhampton Wanderers are extremely well run albeit with the usual caveats I, I inject about Wolves. So teams like that, for sure. And Burnley, up until American ownership has come in and leveraged them with debt, I would say Burnley.
1: Uh, well, I mean, while we're talking about this, would it be silly to move on to something else and then come back to Chelsea-Leicester? We may as well just talk about it now, because they played again earlier today.
2: Yes, but I, I, I'd want to zip through this one, I would think, because... Well, it's, this was not like Sunday's, this was not, excuse me, this was not like Saturday's game. Um,
1: well, no, I mean, no trophy was handed out, but it was still an important game in terms of top four with Chelsea winning and moving ahead of Leicester. Um, and it's one, you've talked about this with uh, with Timo Werner and just his, I mean, how many, whether it be offside goals, uh, he had the handball goal on this one. I mean, it feels like he's had more goals taken off the board like the same number of goals taken off the board, as opposed to goals that he's actually scored.
2: He spoke about his frustration in the post-match uh, to Sky. And he said, it's been just a crazy season for him, which is kind of scary because if things even themselves out and there's uh, as Jonathan Wilson said, if there's a law of averages, then he's getting 50 goals next season, <laughs> uh, which is something to worry about. Um, Chelsea thoroughly deserved this one, Andrew. Um, I don't think too, I think, I think 2 1 flatters Leicester somewhat. Uh, I thought Chelsea left a minute. It. Um, it should have been over at half time. The Chelsea press, the energy brought by Pulisic into the side um, was too much for Leicester as well, who you can't blame them. It's hard to put two um, performances back to back and especially being asked to play so quickly. Usually you get a chance to celebrate a cup final to jo- enjoy it. You have a few days to drink it in. They've had no time whatsoever, none whatsoever. Whatever bit of celebrating they did on Saturday, and a little bit Sunday morning, that was it. They're back in the training field and preparing. Um, they really only had one game or one full day between this. If I mean, Sunday doesn't really count because I'm sure they were trying to get their heads together after Saturday. Um, but even still they left, Ch- uh, Chelsea found a way to leave Leicester in the game. And I, I Paris Perez had one of what may go down as the most crucial misses of the season when he should have slotted home and he skied his shot wide. And, um, and Chelsea, uh, Chelsea win it two one, albeit deservedly.
1: Yeah, we'll see how much that miss winds up mattering at the end of the season. Today it looked pretty costly, but there's you know Leicester City can still finish top four. They are fourth currently with what is it, JJ, a uh, two point lead over Liverpool.
2: Uh it's uh, right now points wise. It's Chelsea on sixty seven, Leicester in fourth on sixty six, and Liverpool in fifth on uh 63 so three points to leicester and uh, a further point then between uh so four points between separating liverpool and chelsea so it's pretty tight now yeah it really is with liverpool Liverpool go to burnley tomorrow which what again that's going to be
1: yeah uh we'll get back to the Premier league in a few minutes here i want to take a turn now back or or not back i want to take a turn down to spain jj where barcelona's run at the title shockingly ended uh, over the weekend we did not see this coming several weeks ago when you and i when when barcelona reached that point where they controlled their own destiny uh, you and i both thought they were going to go on and do this that is not the case they lose 2-1 to celta vigo uh, this is one of those games look it's funny the jobs are at, at stake with games like this ronald kuman is probably going to get fired i would say now i saw John laporta spoke earlier today and he basically said that there will be drastic changes at this club uh, he said that this, this defeat for them, uh, in this title challenge was incomprehensible. So, you know, clearly there are going to be large scale changes. kuman I think is going to lose his job, whether that's fair or not. We'll have that conversation when the news actually comes down, but I'd be stunned at this point if it doesn't happen. And like, you know, and then you, you watch this game and it's just like, okay, Barcelona only scored once, but w- was this an example of them being not good enough? I mean, my God, the chances were just nonstop. Uh, who was it um, in this game Was a who had like a free header from three yards out that he puts over the bar, the goals that Celta Vigo scored. I mean, the first one, it's their first, even half chance of the game, it comes like at, what 35 minutes or so in, yeah. and it's just like Gerard pique kind of turns his back and allows the goal to happen. Terstegan is just rooted to the spot. When, when I saw it in real time, I was like, well, that must have taken a deflection with the way Terstegan didn't even move, but it didn't. It was just a clean shot from about 20, 25 yards out and messy one attempt after another. It felt like Barcelona could have scored four, five, or six in this game, and it just didn't happen for him. And that's this sport. I mean, that I don't know how you analyze it. I don't know that it means Barcelona is a bad team. In the end, that's how the season will be remembered as a huge disappointment, even with a Copa del Rey under their belt. But games like this, it's like in the end, we're not going to go back and say, oh, but you know, Celta Vigo, we're probably lucky to win that. It it doesn't matter. And it's why this sport is just so cruel sometimes.
2: Yeah. And and but even look at the would-be champions or who we expect will clinch the championship. Uh, Look at Atleti at Osasuna. Osasuna take the lead. You know, Um, Atleti equalized through Lodi in, what, the 82nd minute? And then it's the 88th minute before Suarez scores the winner. Like So Mm. you look at the struggles of the top three teams in Spain against some of the minnows, and it's been really marked this season. And uh, whether it be COVID, whether it be just that these two teams – particularly in Barcelona, Real Madrid are in a transition period or that they're at the end of something. I don't know, but nobody has seemed to want to win this league. Yeah. It's true. And uh, it looks as if Atleti will, will limp over the line. Big news today from ESPN though. Uh, Juan Laporta has managed to boost the club's coffers after coming to an agreement with an American investment bank for a 500 million euro loan, half a billion euros of a loan. Um, that is, that is very significant. This is a club in major financial distress. I wonder what effect this has on the market this season or if this is... What we've been told is that Laporte is going to use this to pay players. Not, <laughs> this isn't going to be, um, quote-unquote, the, the war chest to go into the market and buy players, but this is going to be to look after, um, to service debt and, um, and well, pay well There were
1: $1.2 billion in debt, I believe, is the number. Yeah, um, which is incredibly significant.
2: If you're if you're a socio, how do you feel about this? I mean, if you look at what's gone on at Manchester United and um, the Glazers and how hated they are, and now you're 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 in you're in the red to a, an American investment back for uh, half a billion, kind of. It it just it's amazing in a few years how the, the view of more than a club. Barcelona has kind of changed a lot between the Super League, the amounts they pay Messi, the general poor spending of money, the way they act in the transfer market, the aggressive policy with Griezmann, that whole issue, and now this. It's, yeah, um, it's a different view.
1: And and like I talked about with their manager, I mean, again, we'll we'll relitigate whether or not it's fair. It's my belief that Kooman is going to be gone. Yeah, and you know you wonder what they'll do next because it sounds like they don't want to, they don't technically want to fire him until they know who the replacement is going to be,
2: which is fair. And
1: yeah, which, which is, yeah, it's certainly, I would say that makes sense. You know, a lot of eyes are going to turn towards Qatar and Javi where he's been managing because Mm. it seems like that's sort of been, okay, you go there and train for when it's your time. Uh, would you say that this is his time? Because I don't
2: know. I feel like, but it's so, how could you know? Like he's, he's managing at a level that is just nowhere near the standard he's going to be asked to walk into.
1: But well that, but also I just feel like the messy angle of this complicates things for a new manager to walk into, you know, is Xavi, who was a teammate of Messi's, obviously they have a, a personal relationship. Would it be, extra complicated and almost an unfair position for a a new manager to walk into that club and have to handle what is going to be a tricky end potentially to Messi's time at Barcelona, Uh, whether, whether if Messi is there, it will be tricky. If he leaves, he's going to be the one, like now you're going to shuffle that off to Xavi to be the one who has to kind of pick up the pieces of, of the new look Barcelona. Maybe that's the right time to bring him in and start fresh rather than have to transition Messi out. Um, I don't know, but I just wonder if this is maybe, if he if he's maybe the next guy rather than this upcoming guy,
2: according to an English tabloid, he may not have the the chance to to do any of that. He may not be provided the opportunity. With uh, apparently Manchester City preparing to give Messi a one-year deal, a bumper one-year deal. So well, we'll I don't see. know. We'll see about that. I'm 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 really not sure about that. But Suarez and Messi they went for dinner today. Marca reported that. Hmm. They were both seen out and about, Um, and I'm sure Lionel Messi wants Suarez now to to clinch the title and make sure it's not Real Madrid. So,
1: yeah, absolutely. Speaking of which, Real Madrid hanging in the race. They're going to be without Tony Kroos for the title decider. He tested positive for COVID. Imagine that, JJ. Imagine that. Like we've gone through this whole experience. Yeah. You know, like I don't think Tony Kroos has tested positive before. I think this is the first time he has. He's he's made it through. Like we're at the end now vaccines are out it's the final week of your season and the title decider like you've gotten all the way to this point and now to test positive for coronavirus i can only imagine just how frustrating a feeling he's probably dealing with right now hopefully oh, he's healthy and, and which by the way would probably only make it more frustrating because he might be sitting in his house feel 100 percent. what am i doing here and he's not going to be able to play in the most important match of the season one of the most important of his life
2: Um, Can you answer me this question? Because I haven't asked you in our post-production meeting, um, our pre-show production meeting, and I should have. Is Benzema on your agenda anywhere? Well, no, but this was going to be where I was going to mention it. Okay, because France have tested positive for Karim Benzema.
1: This is an incredible development.
2: This is a huge development. And if you don't mind, ESPN laid out why this is an incredible development. If you don't mind me giving a quick resume, of how we got to the point where one of the best strikers in the world is now being recalled to the French national team after a six-year exile. Um, After being a key player for the national team coach since 2012, when Deschamps took over from Laurent Blanc, the two men fell out over Benzema's alleged involvement in uh, in the Matthew Valbuena sex tape scandal. In an interview with Spanish newspaper Marca, Benzema accused Deschamps of having quote, bowed to the pressure of a racist part of France when agreeing to leave him out of the squad. The Real Madrid striker is accused of pressuring Valbuena in 2015 to pay blackmailers who threatened to reveal an intimate video in which Valbuena Valbuena featured. Benzema will stand trial from October 20th to 22nd, this year on the charge of complicity in attempted blackmail. He denies any wrongdoing. While Deschamps has not picked Benzema since October 2015 and said he would... Never forget Benzema's comments. He has never stated that he would not call him up again. Benzema was named best French player in a foreign league by the French professional footballers union on Sunday. I don't have the ability, no one does, to go back and change anything. The most important thing is today and tomorrow. There have been important steps, one of them very important, said Deschamps when asked about Benzema. He added, we have seen each other. We had a long discussion. And after that, I had a long reflection to come to this decision. I'm not going to reveal a word of the discussion. It's only our business. I needed it. He needed it. What a weird story. One of the weirdest reasons for an international exile of such a top quality player.
1: Absolutely. It's, it's bizarre. insane. It's wild. Um, you know, to hear the, the last part there, because when you initially see this headline, that Benzema is returning to the fold instantly. My gut reaction was to say, why, why now? Yeah. France, have, they've won a world cup. You know, they, they've proven that they can do this without him. Even if they're ready to move on from Olivier Giroud, like there are, there, there are attacking options there that they can go to. You know, they have Mbappe, they have Griezmann. Like it's, but, but doesn't it seem, they're does... still probably the best team in the world. So it, to me before reading it, the only thing could be, that there was some sort of personal reconciliation, which in fact sounds like was a, that was exactly the case. That right. could be the only reason that something like this would happen.
2: I, I think so, but also the fact that Giroud isn't starting at... Um, he isn't really starting at Chelsea, and maybe it's a pragmatic tactical move as well, because we know how much this manager desires, wants, needs to have that old-style centre-forward... You know, maybe he looks at his depth chart and he thinks, okay, Mbappe, he's an attacking player. He's not an out-back-to-goal center forward. He's not a guy who's going to hold up the play. He looks at um, Wissam Ben Yedder and he looks at, he, he, he thinks, class player for Monaco, scored 20 goals this season. He's a brilliant player. Won't do the things that I get out of this kind of player and I need to have this kind of player because I'm a slave to my system. Welcome back, Kareem. Well, it's just funny, though, because like even at the last world cup Olivier
1: Giroud was not like he's not he's not Benzema he's nowhere near Benzema mm. even at his best i would say he he was nowhere near what Karim Benzema is um so it's just funny to think now oh well Giroud is moving out so we should probably like now's the time to get Benzema i would say even before like if there was yeah. like well, Giroud wasn't so great before that you could say oh we don't need Benzema we have Olivier Giroud uh, so it's just funny to me that like, that would be the catalyst. I don't know. I actually don't know what the catalyst is. I mean, well, I'm with kind the of out of my a
2: well, well, so am I, we're guessing we're speculating, a couple of speculators, you know, uh, chewing the fat. Uh, but I would think that as well, that the 26 man squad makes a difference too. the fact that you've got the, that extra room to play with. Why not bring it, you know, roll the dice. Uh, well, the only, the, why not is twofold a, his own principles,
1: uh, you know, for, for how he feels about the man personally mm. and B, whether or not you think his presence there upsets the chemistry of that team.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I can't see how it does at, the, at this remove. We're so far from what happened now at this point. I honestly don't think that the younger members of the French team are bothered. I think the accusation or the suggestion that Deschamps bowed to a racist faction in, in, in Spain, the fact that he said those words needed to be cleansed you know Deschamps, I'm sure, asked him to apologise for what was said, or to at least qualify what he said when they had their meeting. Yeah. Um. So um. Also, just just uh, one quick one for the weekend, Andrew. Sunday, a big day in League One, uh, with just a point lead over PSG. Lille can clinch with a win, a draw, a PSG loss, or a PSG draw. Uh, PSG need Lille to lose. Obviously, if both lose, Lille are champions. Uh, Lille play away to Angers. Uh, while PSG are away to breast three p.m. kickoffs on BN Sport in the USA. If you want a, a tense final day, a little bit of drama. The Premier League's not cutting it for yet. Three o'clock. More than a little. Three, yeah, a lot. Three o'clock uh, BN Sport on uh, on Sunday.
1: Uh quickly now, a couple other games from uh the past few days that we just wanted to briefly touch on. JJ, what what your club did the other day one of the most exhilarating finishes of the season. Allison yeah. in stoppage time with the header to keep Liverpool's season alive. Essentially, can we uh, hear you- Arlo make that call, please? Absolutely. Here it is.
2: Curled in right footed. Allison. Would you believe it? Allison, the goalkeeper, has saved Liverpool's season and their hopes of finishing in the top four. When you think you've seen it all in the Premier League, Alisson scores a winning goal. The screaming of the name Alisson. Just, just an amazing moment. Uh, and you know what's even more amazing? I, I hate to be analytics and tactics guy, but I've never seen a set piece from a Sam Allardyce team where nobody, nobody picks up a player. And I guess it was because they thought, pick up the attacking outfield players don't bother with the goalkeeper that's coming forward it rarely works but it was such an athletic header it was such a leap and and he snapped back his neck and powered it past sam johnson think about it how good had johnson been in that game no one could get past him none of liverpool's array of outfield attacking players could do it but it's the goalkeeper who was hugely emotional after the game um the last few months a few weeks with his father's passing in, 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 tragic circumstances in Brazil really came to the surface. And, um, he gave a pretty, pretty special, um, post-match, uh, um, conversation to, uh, to sky sports. So what a moment moment of the season, I think in the premier league in a season that has been lacking in, in moments. I think it's the moment of the season.
1: Do you have a favorite, uh, goalkeeper scoring a goal memory?
2: Uh, Outside favorite, of this one, obviously, a favorite goal? No, because the ones that spring to mind just a, a, aren't very good. Um, the, like Tim, Tim Howard one, Gail Breeze was incredible.
1: Asmir Begovic had a similar one to that. Yeah, Paul it, Robinson, I remember had one for Tottenham. Just wellied it.
2: Yeah, they're they're usually not great. Um, oh oh, my favorite one, Jimmy Glass, last day of the season, third division in England. Yeah. Carlisle are about to drop out of league football for the first time in their history. I think it's 1998 and uh, glass comes up for a corner. They have to score. It's the last kick of the game. And Jimmy glass, the goalkeeper scores. And he was on loan. He wasn't even a member of Carlisle, kept them in the football league, became an absolute club legend, pitch invasion. The whole works. Uh, let's see
1: quickly on Tottenham. Don't have much to say about their win against Wolves. The story really uh, developed yesterday. We had been talking about this. There were rumors, and now it sounds like it's an accepted fact. Harry Kane has asked Tottenham to be transferred this summer. Um, We don't need to go too deeply into this because, like I said, we talked about it last week, and we will certainly be talking about it again. Um, I just find it interesting because I don't know what the market is going to be here. He still has three years left on his contract, so immediately leverage in favor of Spurs. Uh, There's a limited number of teams that he could go to, Barcelona have already
2: ruled themselves out. So. so,
1: I mean, shrink that number down right there. He says he wants, he, again, I qualify all of this by saying, if you believe the reports that we're hearing, he says he wants to stay in England. So now we're pretty much talking about Manchester City, Manchester United, and Chelsea. I yes. simply don't believe that Daniel Levy will sell him to Chelsea. I no. just don't believe it. Uh, so I cross them off the list. Manchester City, you're talking right now about them potentially bringing in Lionel Messi. Uh I mean, my God, if, if they can afford a summer of bringing in Messi and Kane.
2: <laughs> can they though? Well, like, I, honestly, I, I don't think so. Does, is financial fair play still a thing? I mean, they can afford it. Sorry, they can. They have the, they have the wealth are, of can, a, Are they
1: allowed to do it? Right. Like, that, if if right. we believe in financial fair play as, as any kind of institution, I don't know how it can happen. Um, but the, whatever, I guess we'll see. So then you look at Manchester United, um, there's talk about Borussia Dortmund potentially being willing to sell Jadon Sancho this summer to Manchester United. Uh, also, Manchester United just re-upped with Edson Cavani. Now, I'm not saying Cavani would be enough to prevent them from going after Kane.
2: No, but United pay United wages.
1: Right. So, you know, for a, a club who has this uh, very well-publicized debt... How much are they going to be willing to spend? And look, it's not just that Tottenham have leverage here with the years remaining on the contract for Kane. It is also that he's 28. He has, or he he'll be 28, uh, and he has a history of ankle problems that is relevant on a year in year out basis. At some point, it seems for him. Uh, So, like his his peak is probably now. Uh, how much are you going to be willing to pay for maybe another year or two of this version of Kane? And then potentially, you know, for a player like him with this number of ankle injuries, and you know, we don't know what it will be three to four years from now. Um, but
2: we, I, I should reiterate what version of Kane we've got right now, because I didn't think he, I thought he was in decline after the last ankle uh, injury, but that's not the case. Uh, sensational- most score. Goal- Most goal involvements 2021 in the top five European leagues. Robert Lewandowski has 47. That's 40 goals, seven assists. Lionel Messi has 30 goals, nine assists, 39. And Harry Kane is in third with 35 goal involvements, 22 goals, 13 assists on a team that's been ranked this season for a long, long part of it. He's ahead of Romelu Lukaku on 34 and Kylian Mbappe on 33 um, goal involvements for 2020, uh, 21. So he's this incredible. Is
1: con- His consistency has not waned at any point since he basically rose to prominence at this club, they will be devastated on the field. Should he leave? Yes. But this is, and this is the conversation that we'll have to have in coming weeks. Cause I don't have the answer to it right now, but we've talked about Tottenham and how one of their struggles in the transfer window, isn't just buying players. It's knowing when to sell. You know, you spoke about Eric Dyer, how Tottenham may have really missed that boat when Manchester United were potentially interested in going in for what was it, 50 million on Dyer? Yeah. I mean, if you look at that now, you think that that was probably a missed opportunity for Tottenham <laughs> to recoup, to get some money that could have been used on who knows what. Um, so, like, This is the challenge. Is that moment now for Kane? If they can get 150 million for him, it will kill them, of course. But if you have any faith in their recruitment ability, that's a lot of money to be able to retool a side that, even with him, is sixth. We've talked about how they need to rebuild. Now, Andrew, my idea of them rebuilding didn't involve losing him, he's the team. But that's a lot of money. Uh, And you just wonder if maybe this is one of those moments where you kind of have to take it and just say, I hate. Doing this but it might be In the best interest of this club
2: I hear what you're saying I'm not sure the economics are there For this to happen I think Daniel Levy Will just say no And he Daniel Levy will rest On the professionalism and the character Of this guy this guy is not going to go missing Spurs aren't going to be in preseason Training and he's at the shops
1: It's going to test that you're right. Up to this point, we have no reason to believe that Kane won't conduct himself in the most professional way imaginable. And he's a, he's a t- he grew up a Spurs fan. Like that all is a part of his mystique with this club and where he came from, and them giving him his chance. Um, but this is going to test it. I mean, there's rumors that he came to some kind of behind the scenes agreement last year about if I play out this season, I hope that you will hear me out next year and allow me to leave. Uh, you know, if that's true then this could get ugly if if Daniel Le- Levy refuses to bend. And if that was in fact an agreement that was made behind the scenes.
2: Oh, it could be a long summer.
1: Ugh, it really could. I'm not, not exactly looking forward to that part no. of the summer. Uh, quickly now, JJ, before we get to uh, our guest, Steven Mandis is going to join us in just a couple minutes to talk about his new book. What happened to the USMNT, the ugly truth about the beautiful game uh, just quickly. I-, I have two things on MLS that I just wanted to mention uh the first one is super brief um props to gonzalo iguain he was named mls player of the week last week scored two goals against fc cincinnati including the winner um that makes four goals one assist for him so far this season and i I bring him up as somebody who i'm interested in because i I feel like a lot of what i talked about last week when we did our jump to conclusions week in talking about chicharito i feel like you could probably apply some of that to iguain as well uh entering the league in kind of a, a weird time uh for everybody, let alone somebody who's just transitioning into the league for the first time. Now maybe he's a little bit more settled, uh, and a lot of people kind of wrote that off as being a, a bad, you know, typical NLS glamour signing with not a lot of substance behind it. There is still time for him to prove that that is not the case, and he's so far in the early part of the season, he's doing that. We'll see if it can continue, but that's why I say he is somebody that I'm going to keep my eye on over the course of the season because it's so far it's so good for him. Uh, so I don't- props to him there.
2: Yeah, I've got something from this game, uh, but I'm uh, I'm talking to FC Cincinnati, who score twice, have Brenner and Luciano Acosta on the field and still don't win a game. Um, that defeat to Inter Miami, who had Breck Shea on the score sheet as well.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, Remember when he was on the podcast? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. He was. He was on the podcast way, way back. When I don't remember. He was, remember he it, was with it, Orlando, right? Yeah, I don't remember it being a brilliant interview. I agree. I don't I think agree. Maybe Breck it was, was our
1: fault. We were young then. We didn't know what we were doing. We were no, probably I think,
2: starstruck. I think we were super enthusiastic, and Breck did not meet that enthusiasm. <laughs> I think he wanted to know who these bozos were. Remember, he was yeah. freshly back from Stoke. Yeah. Now, that's the second time I've heard Breck Shea's met, name mentioned this week. Tony Pulis was on Irish radio. And remember, Tony Pulis signed Breck Shea for Stoke. Uh, for an ill-fated spell where he went to Barnsley on loan and another club, Birmingham, I think, and it didn't really work out for him. But apparently he told a story of where um, Glenn Whelan, uh, one of the veterans at Stoke, was played Breck Shea a pass in training. And uh, the pass sailed over Breck Shea's head and went out. And Breck, instead of just giving him the hand signal, you know, the nice idea, thumbs up. Right. Threw his arms in the air. Oh.
1: No, you can't do
2: that. No, and Glenn Whelan apparently just ran over to him, and uh, let's, let's put it this way, set him straight on training ground etiquette. Um, my other thing from MLS, Andrew, was um, New England's win over Columbus Crew. Top of the Eastern Conference, only one defeat. New England off to a flyer. The crew, who have been renamed the crew. So I have to talk about this. According to our press release today, it should be said they are not off to a flyer. Uh, the reigning champions with just one win in five.
1: Not to mention a, a failed CONCACAF Champions League campaign for them as well.
2: Yeah, not a good start to the season uh, on or off the field. So
1: let's talk r- quickly about this. The uh, Columbus SC crew United Real Inter FC Um You're right, they released a press, uh, they came out with a press release. There was a joint statement between them and the Supporters Club where they said this evening, a positive collaborative discussion took place between crew, investor operators, front office executives, and a diverse group from the crew community regarding the future of the club's brand and the club's commitment to its supporter community. Um, And in the end, yada, 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 they will be maintained. The crest has changed, it's no longer SC, that has been replaced by once again, crew. It's just one of these situations, JJ, where all of this stupidity and silliness could have been saved and spared had they just had a dialogue and spoken with fans in the first place.
2: I love, Andrew, how the collaboration comes after they've done the deal. Right. right? Imagine it's I punch you in the jaw out of nowhere. And we go into a meeting and then afterwards we come out and say, well, collaboratively, we've realized, or I come out and say, "It's, it's with a great collaboration between me and Andrew, we've decided not to punch him in the jaw. We've talked about it now. How about you collaborate before you do the
1: act? Well, that's the thing is like how much money is spent on, you know, the marketing people and the consultants to try to determine what it is that fans want. Like, I know one way of trying to determine what the fans want. Ask the fans. Bring them into the fold. Has that become just such a foreign concept? By the way, for, they for live- fans to be part of these conversations and like, especially that club where is there any fan base in this country that feels a stronger ownership of their team than this group of fans that saved that team? Like, you would think it shouldn't be that hard to send out an email blast of like, to, to the to supporters groups for the crew of just like the ideas that they're thinking of, like referendums of, of large scale
2: ideas where fans can weigh in. It just... It shouldn't be that hard. There's some supporters groups I, I'm thinking of. <laughs> I'm being unfair, but I'm sure it would be easier to push through something, say, in New England. You know, the revs don't seem to have that kind of really hardcore support. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do. And they'd protest. But I feel like you could foist something on them there. What have we learned about Columbus in the last five years? They will not roll over for anyone. Right. And uh, they're who's... stubborn in a good way. I mean, yeah. that in, in the positive way. So the Haslam's and the ownership have learned early at least. Let's put it that way. They've made their one mistake. No more boo-boos.
1: Ah, uh, such silliness, JJ. It's so ridiculous, but yes, are yeah, excited so Macron- about again. moving
2: forward together. You weren't excited when you went and did the thing without asking us.
1: If any, if, if, if the last two months, month and a half or whatever it's been has taught us anything, it's that just like, can we just reopen lines of communication between clubs and fan bases? I just hate the idea that that's become just like the club is up here on their perch in their tower. And the fans are down there. Like hopefully we're learning some lessons here that communication between the two will save a lot of people, a lot of headache, and a lot of money, super league, this on a much lesser scale. Like how many more lessons do we need to learn before we understand that maybe teams and fans should just talk to each other, or maybe that's just like too fanciful an idea that just can no longer occur. Um, All right, JJ, we we talked about this uh, earlier on the podcast, and and we're so excited to do this because we know how diehard and and obsessive this American fan base is right now for this U.S. men's national team as they've kind of like reemerged with this new look younger
2: group. Well, you're Uh, a complete psychopath about it.
1: I mean, I can't wait for the summer. Like part of it was that the premier league this season was just direct to me, not just from the Tottenham perspective, but just like the, the title race was ended so early. The relegation battle ended so early, no fans in stadiums. It was just like, I'm glad the season happened. It was, it was a nice distraction, but like, I'm ready for U S soccer and this summer is going to have a whole hell of a lot of it. Uh, so we're so excited now um, to talk with Steven Mandis, who co-authored this new book, about the U.S. men, what happened to the U.S. MNT, the ugly truth about the beautiful game. Uh, The book came out today, so get online right now. Look for it. This is like required reading for U.S. soccer fans. And uh, we're so thrilled to have Stephen on the program with us right now. Stephen, what's up? How are you? I am well. Thanks, yourself. We're good. We're good. Thanks so much for joining us here. This is obviously, I mean, the U.S. men, this is such a dominant subject matter on this podcast for us, for our listeners, especially – you know, since the disaster of 2017, the conversation around them has kind of taken on this this tone of of what went wrong, how can it be fixed? Um, are we on the road to fixing it? And obviously your book, um, which is out today, tackles so many of those subjects. And so I, I kind of wanted to go right into it and, and rather beginning with the what went wrong portion of the conversation. Uh, I kind of wanted to start with the opposite. When? If ever was there a time in your opinion when the US men were, were going about things the right way?
0: well uh, let's look at the um, since 1994 the before 1994 the US men's national team were three, five and 23 against Mexico three wins since 1994 the United States is 16, 10 and 13 So obviously some progress has been made since, after the 2014 World Cup, the U.S. had reached at least the round of 16 and three of the last four World Cups. There's only other seven other countries during that time that had done the same thing. So a, a lot had been done. And I think people also don't recognize that MLS almost went bankrupt after 9-11. And the World Cup was almost not televised in English in the United States in 2002 and 2006. And obviously today, MLS is doing very well. So soccer has come a long way in this country. And when we started to look at our in, this question about what, what has been going on, we looked at 2017. And if you look at the, the HEX, which the US finished fifth in, there were 16 players on that team that were playing in the MLS more than any other country. Okay, and, and Mexico, which has obviously a very good league, they had 11 players in their domestic league. And the US had four players in the top five leagues in Europe playing 9,000 minutes. That was more minutes than any other country in the hex. Um, Mexico has five players playing 6,000 minutes. So it's not a talent issue. That's the one conclusion that we came up to. Everyone wants to focus on talent. The United States had enough talent to qualify in um, 2017. The the thing that we found was it was was sort of a, what was pushing the United States was a, a focus to being out of its own identity. And what I mean by that is, This predominance of European influence is impacting U.S. soccer, not just U.S. soccer, but also many countries. So the last four World Cup winners have been France, Germany, Spain and Italy. All of them are in the top five leagues, obviously. Mm -hmm. And those teams have dominant. Those countries have dominant clubs within their domestic leagues. So when we say Germany has a great soccer country, what we're really saying is Bayern Munich has a great development academy. When we say Spain has a great soccer country, we're talking about Barcelona has a great development academy. And I think people forget that because they're so focused in on nations and everything else. A lot of stuff gets left out.
2: Stephen, uh, the early chapter, and in, in fact, most of the book, there's a, there's an obsession with the word grit. Um, grit comes up an awful lot and and identity. So so what if, if you were explaining the term grit, what does it mean in the U.S. soccer context?
0: Um, do, do you remember a picture of Brian McGride with uh, blood streaming down his face? Right. Um, that was the grit. That there was something about them, or they were not willing to back down against Mexico. They would they would be they'd never give up. They would work together in teams. They were, as as Diego Simeone would often say, they would put their face where a boot was likely to get to. There was that element. And that has been lost over time. And that was something we started to delve into is why is that? And we came back to this idea of that people no longer wanted the identity of American soccer to just be counterattacking style compressed space in work group and defensively and the identity to be underdogs that are gritty people wanted american soccer to become attacking aggressive proactive possession based and not be underdogs but is, 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 is that
2: sorry Stephen? is that just not yeah. a consequence of moving with the times because like I, you talk about grit and and i agree with you there is there is something quintessentially gritty about the underdog because that role or that ma- that that mantle is foisted upon them like the republic of ireland have had tons of grit down the years because they've had to be they haven't had the ball so you have to show that grit that determination to counterattack, attack etc but but now things have changed and so you know the fact that we have less identifiable grit in the game is probably because we have more technical players than we've ever had before yeah so this is actually
0: this was the benefit of the book, because most people, when they focus on U.S. soccer, are interviewing people in the United States, um, coaches, players, things like that. What we did is we actually interviewed people outside the United States. And one of the critical interviews, for example, was with Diego Simeone. So I asked Diego, like, why, why don't you play a proactive, aggressive style when Atletico Madrid, which has a lot of talent, is playing Leganes? or Abar, or these other teams. And I understand that they may feel like they're outmanned or outgunned against um, Real Madrid and Barcelona. So they want to play counterattack against them. And I said, this is very important for club football, because you want to generate revenues and highlights and social media clips and everything. So that's why you'd want to play that way. And he made a really important um, distinction. He said, you know, if you try to play one way against Leganes or Abar or something like that, and another way against Real Madrid, you lose your identity. So we have to play the same way all the time. And then when you look at the data, so look at uh, Jurgen Klinsmann, who, in my opinion, was sort of caught between trying to play aggressive and proactive, and then um, and then another way against Belgium in the World Cup, you can see that the average goals per game, which was two, overall in his career which is higher than Bruce Arena and Bob Bradley, but it was 0.73 against top 20 teams. And against the other, uh, Bradley and Arena were still above one on, against the top 20 teams. And that, to me, is a loss of identity of the club. And you could see that. That's what happened. That's, that's how we're trying to explain why that was.
2: And, and so, Stephen, you want to get back to the spirit of 76. Can you explain that one for us?
0: Sure. In in 1776, the United States determined that they, they were outmanned and outgunned. So the best way to fight the British was guerrilla warfare—to to sort of attack them when they least expected it. Okay. They 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 knew it was crazy to try to to be like the British, act like the British. Okay. American soccer was the same. That was called counterattack. Guerrilla warfare was counterattack football, and so. Now the United States saying, oh, we're good enough and we have enough talent to go against the elite teams and play like the British, like in terms of military might and 776, to me doesn't make sense. We, of course, our technical talent is improving. So is everybody else's. But I don't think we have enough technical talent to compete in the same way the Europeans are. And that's in part because the way Americans learn the game because many European players are learning football in constrained spaces, playing almost a street football or a futsal, where in the States, people learn soccer in a a large field that's grassy. It's two different approaches to the game. It's similar, we looked at European basketball. European basketball, can we all agree, has a different identity? They play Euro-style basketball. There's a Euro step, Mm. the big man plays outside that's very different than American basketball. They didn't say, hey, let's play like the NBA. They realized that it was crazy because NBA players learn the game in a different way.
2: uh, And just not to to delabor the point though, but like that would be something that if we were to say this on our podcast, we have a huge follow followership and listenership and and they love when we talk about the U S men's national team. If I were to say, or to suggest that we play a more gritty, more conservative counterattacking style, when we've got Christian Pulisic, Giovanni Reyna in the side, I, I I I'd be in trouble.
0: Yeah, but how Atletico Madrid has Jao Felix, it had Antoine Griezmann, it had a lot of talent, um, and they're limping. So- they're
2: limping over the line, Stephen. You know, <laughs> and they're, they're 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 taking they-
0: advantage of a COVID year.
2: <laughs> sure,
0: but they've been to two Champions League finals. Mm-hmm. Um, they've won two leagues against Real Madrid and Barcelona that have significantly more resources that they're available to them. Mm-hmm. So I think they've done extremely well. I think, I think people should relook at how they think about American soccer. Just because we have more technical ability, other countries do too. Um, so you have to figure out what's the best way to win. I actually think what Greg Berthalter is now doing and is changing a little bit so that he is starting to do more of a high-press style. So to me, that may be a more modern counterattacking style where he recognizes he has enough talent to do that um, because if they can quickly catch the ball on the other side of the pitch, they have enough talent to score. And I think that, once again, it's early days, so I don't know if that's where he's going to go, but that may be the new modern version of guerrilla warfare for USA soccer, and that may be that happy medium. It's the same style that the 1991 women's team used to win the World Cup. Because the coach, Anson Dorrance, did not believe that they had enough technical skill t- and tactical familiarity to compete against the top women's team. So he used their athleticism and the technical skill of um, Michelle Akers and Karen Jennings and, um, and April Heinrichs. So it, it's been used before in the U.S. Stephen Mandis
1: joining us here on Caught Offside. His book is out today, What Happened to the USMNT? The Ugly Truth. About the beautiful game, and Stephen, some of what you're talking about here is so interesting. Um, you know, words like grit, and and the statistic you gave earlier about the number of domestic players in MLS who were on one of our more successful World Cup teams. And I say that because there's so much excitement right now among this American fan base uh, because we've kind of moved into this new era where. You know, Serginio Dest starting at Barcelona, Weston McKinney starting at Juventus, Christian Kulisic, now one of the, the better players at Chelsea and in the Premier League. And there's this this feeling from American fans of, yes, our best young players are going abroad and they're playing in the best leagues. And I'm not, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Are you suggesting that there isn't necessarily a direct correlation to that and American soccer success?
0: Yeah, so what we found is one of the most important ingredients to success in the World Cup is familiarity. So if you look at all these clubs, like I said, by, on the Germany starting 11 team, uh, seven of the 11 players came from two academies, Bayern Munich and Schaka. Hmm. Okay, if you look at France, most of the team are um, children of immigrants or dual nationals who lived in the suburbs of Paris or Lyon, okay, who grew up together, played street soccer together, and then went to an academy called Clairefontaine, which is sponsored by the French Academy. Okay, so this is just as I mentioned with Spain, Barcelona, nine players had attended the Barcelona Academy. Seven were on the Barcelona team. Okay, now let's look at the United States. The United States has nine, the last uh, World Cup, Jürgen Klinsmann had nine different leagues represented on the US team. Leagues on the team, not teams, leagues. So you take the German team, 21 of the 23 players actually play in the Bundesliga. Look at uh, Spain, 21 of the 23 players play in La Liga. So the United States lacks familiarity amongst the players today. That was not true in the past. In the past, the United States had something called the University of Virginia UCLA and IMG. And in 1994, they had Mission Viejo, which is similar to the 1980 Olympic hockey team. And so these players, as you know, don't practice that often together. So the other teams have a huge advantage, Juventus or Barcelona or whatever, because these guys are playing together all the time. So the biggest challenge for the U.S. team is going to be familiarity. And in the MLS, you have a salary cap. So you can't be like Bayern Munich and have all these players on one team or Barcelona on one team. And that is a challenge that not just the US has, but take Brazil. In Brazil, there's European rules are that you can only have three non-European players on your team. Well, that means that you can't have more than three Brazilians on your team. So they're gonna suffer from a lack of familiarity on a relative basis to European, the top European teams.
1: One of the other things that was interesting to me in looking at the situation, like the hard part about U.S. soccer is that we tend to measure success by World Cup success. Like if we don't make it out of the group, we failed. Like you mentioned, we've actually had some success in terms of that um, in getting to at least the round of 16. In reality, though, that is that is a very specific snapshot of a very specific moment. Is that the best way to measure progress for American soccer, how we're doing at World Cups?
0: It's a good question, and we, we mentioned in the book that it's, it's why do you win, what's your motivation, how do you win, the style, who you win with, and the last thing is when you win. So uh, it's unfair to just look at U.S. progress based on World Cups, but at the same time, it's, it's, the, all, most it's, visible. <laughs> it's the most <laughs> visible thing. And we, we mentioned at the beginning of the book, it's flawed because there's very few data points. I mean, put this in perspective. You have to win seven games to win a World Cup today. The United States, since 1950, has won five, five games in total in the World Cup, and you need seven to win, and that's overall our entire career. That's an unfair characteristic to look at the U.S. progress, because as I mentioned before, a lot has been done, and I think a lot of good things are being done, but I think we also misunderstand the game um, and who we are in it and where we are in it. Um, because I think a lot of people make comparisons to the major sports in the United States, which have different types of advantages and are very different than soccer.
2: Stephen, um, there's a chapter called uh, Why Do the U.S. Women's National Team Win? And, um, you know, look, the, the, the U.S. Women's National Team are the standard or have been the standard bearer for soccer in this country for, for a long, long time. But um, how is it helpful to look at what they've done and compare it with the, with the men's side when they kind of operate into different soccer worlds, if you will?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a really insightful question. And, and we, we mentioned at the beginning of that chapter, it's very difficult to compare the two, but there are some things that are interesting that we can learn from them. So, for example, this is something that people don't understand. In 1982, there were only 80 NCAA schools that sponsored women's soccer. There were more women's fencing teams in 1982 than there were soccer teams, and that the women's Nordic football championship began in 1974. UEFA's women's championship began in 1984 with 16 teams. So going into the 1991 World Cup, the United States women were not favored to win that World Cup. What did they do to win that World Cup? And there were a couple of things that we found. One was is they used a different style than any women's team. They used a 3-4-3 that was never done before in women's soccer and in lead level. And they used a high press, which we talked about. The other thing is what we learned is is in 1991, 50% of the team came from the University of North Carolina. The University of North Carolina was Bayern Munich, was Barcelona, it was the development academy for the US team. And if you think that that seems crazy, Think about this the 1980 olympic hockey team for the men's uh, gold 50 percent of the players came from the university of minnesota this idea of familiarity is very very important especially if you don't have the same technical skill level as your com- competition so there are some lessons to be drawn from the women's team it's it's not a perfect uh, analogy but there are things that we looked at and said hey you know what that's what they're doing the other thing that we learned is and we took a lot of uh, flack from the, the top women about this, is, is not just familiarity helped and great coaching decisions, but pay to play helped the women. And that's a very mm-hmm. controversial thing to say, but pay to play has benefited the women's game. And the reason is, is because the parents of, of girls in America are outspending any federation or club around the world in the de- development of players. It's an inefficient system, it's an unfair system, but that's what it has been working there was no incentive for somebody in italy to spend money to develop their daughter in the united states there was an economic incentive which was a more selective college or a college scholarship well today as you can tell that's changing in the women's game because the clubs but the men the same economic incentives that were used for the men there's the united states parents could never outspend the top clubs in Europe in identification and development of players, especially in an efficient system. There's way too much money in the game in men's soccer. And that's why the men were falling behind until solidarity payments and training compensation, which changed in 2019, where now there's an economic incentive for MLS clubs to develop players.
2: Stephen, did Title IX have a huge role in kind of giving giving women's soccer a boost or an advantage ahead of almost the rest of the world?
0: Yes, Title IX was the basis behind the economic incentives behind why parents would spend money on their daughters to to play the game.
2: And, and Stephen, just the sense I'm getting here from you, uh, generally is about familiarity and creating almost a club style culture at international level as as much as as is possible. Then this summer, this year must be huge for Greg Bearhalter. Like the fact that they're going to be together so often, he needs to almost. Hammer down his, his starting 11 and his substitutes. He needs to know his best side by the end of this year, correct? Correct.
0: I think it, his biggest challenge has been, especially with COVID, and it, even putting COVID aside, is, this, is how do you create this culture where these players have not played together, have not grown up together? They didn't go to the IMG Academy together. They didn't go to UVA together. This is his biggest challenge. And this is a challenge for any U.S. coach. So we looked at this. The United States coaches typically use 60 players in in qualification to identify their team. In Europe, they usually use between 35 and 40 players. That's because they're developing a core group of players to play together, so when they show up. In the United States, like I said, we have players all over the world playing that then come back. So it's a big challenge for uh, Greg, and I think he's him and Brian and Ernie have done an outstanding job of trying to create a, a teamwork, culture um keeping everyone together in whatsapp groups and zooms and things like that
1: yeah that that's one of my final questions this issue of familiarity is fascinating to me um, because it feels like us soccer has gone in the opposite direction and i you know with players kind of spread now throughout various european clubs um and i just wonder if we've crossed a threshold like is there no there's no putting the milk back in the udder this is where money is uh, this is where young players want to be going uh, It's not necessarily your job to lay out the solution. That's on the guys that you just mentioned from U.S. soccer. But do you have a thought essentially on how they can create that sort of familiarity that they're lacking?
0: Yeah, so I I think what will happen um, is that there will be familiarity because many of the players will come from a few academies similar to Germany. So in Germany, the majority of the players come from four academies um, Shaka, Borussia Dortmund, um, and, uh, Bayern Munich. And so I think you'll see academies like right now, if you look at it, there's some familiarity with the Red Bulls, Philadelphia union, FC Dallas. Dallas yeah. Um, and so what you'll see is three more. It, we really need to get the, the LA, the Southern California academies to be excellent. And Texas is very important because those two academies are important. But the other thing which I think people miss in, in the States is the world cup is really a competition of zip codes and families. Because think about this, Paris had between 2000, this century, Paris has produced 60 players that have played in the World Cup. Obviously they all haven't played for France. Buenos Aires, 50 players in the World Cup. Montevideo in, in Uruguay, 50 players in the World Cup. Mm. And this idea that, oh, they're gonna come from everywhere in your country, and it's a national team is is, Totally, people don't understand. It's really a game of very small places. Um, so for the United States, the best example would be Kearney, New Jersey, back in the early 1990s. The other thing people don't understand is, is that it's a competition, not just of zip codes, but families. And we now have that, and that's what's happening, is when I, when I told the Federation that Gio Rena, Christian Pulisic, uh, Josh Sargent, uh, Michael Bradley, they're all products of the college game. And they said, what are you talking about? They didn't go to college. I said, yeah, but their parents did. So Gio Reynas, both of his parents played college soccer. Um, uh, Christian Pulisic, both of his parents played college soccer. Same with Josh Sargent. So I said, actually, this is, most countries have this in development already. And that's what the United States is catching up with. So I said, if you really want to improve, go have, co- encourage college soccer then encourage the moms and the dads to get married that both played college soccer, have children and become college coaches. That's how you develop players.
2: Sounds like a problematic system to, to try and enforce.
0: <laughs> That's what has happened around the world though.
2: Super,
1: super soccer families. Uh, last one from me, Stephen, as you were going through researching this book, speaking with people closest to the situation, I'm just curious if you came across Anything in particular that surprised you that that challenged some of your your preconceived notions that you might have had? Uh, I'm curious about that.
0: Um, I I learned a little bit about the clicks that get involved in the team. So you have to remember in, in, in 1994, it was relatively simple. You had a group of people that were Mission Viejo and then you had a handful of players that came, that were in Europe and they came and played. And most of the guys in Mission Viejo grew up together, played at the same colleges together and everything else. Well, by the time you as I get to Jurgen Klinsmann, you have players that are in the MLS players that are in the top five leagues in Europe. You have players that are in the other parts of Europe. Um, you have Mexican-American players. You have the German players. And each one has their own unique culture and distinction. And that is a very difficult challenge for any coach um, in the U.S. So I think that there was something there that I don't think people recognize. Because as I mentioned, if you coach the German team, 21 of the players are in the Bundesliga. And and so you you have a and you have a hierarchy of system. Everyone recognizes if you play at Bayern Munich, you're the best player. The United States doesn't have that equivalent. MLS doesn't have one dominant team. The other thing I didn't recognize was the tournament is a. It, these players are together for a long time. They're they're a month or plus together, and if there is not team chemistry during that month things deteriorate very quickly. And that's not just the United States. You can see that with other, there's many, many examples of that. So that also, I don't think people appreciate that. The last thing I'll leave you with, which is a statistic, which is if the team loses the first game, you only have a 10% probability of advancing to the round of 16. So the first game is incredibly important. If you draw that game, it's 50-50. And so if you happen to play the toughest team, in your uh group on the first game you're at a real big disadvantage um, if you lose that and so that there's a lot of luck that's involved in the world cup which is why it's not a, a it's not fair to just judge american progress on world cups
1: it's fascinating i would say that i, I mean for so many of our listeners the u.s soccer is is everything to them so I, I would say this is almost required reading what happened to the us mnt the ugly truth about the beautiful game Stephen mandis Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Our thanks to Stephen Mandis. Check it out. That book is available now. And if you are an American soccer fan, I highly, highly recommend it because it was really, really interesting.
2: Yeah. One point I'd make though is he talks about familiarity and, yeah. and, the, and the idea that that's a key theme. And I, I understand what he's saying about that. You only need to look at the successful Spanish teams, which were made up of like essentially two clubs mm-hmm. uh, that did what they did. But I would push the fact that Serginio Dest is playing for the US men's national team because of our group, our youth system and the fami- familiarity there. And you'll notice that like guys like Yunus Musa, other players like that, they're joining the, the you know, the, they're joining the camp or the team because of that too. They had positive experiences and, and maybe we don't have a collective club spirit, but maybe we get that from the fact that these players have come through our youth system together. And, and maybe that's where the bonds have been formed. Hopefully. I do think, I mean, it's not
1: something I've thought so much about. And it's an interesting point that he brings up. We've been so obsessed with getting these players over to Europe and playing at these various clubs. I think that's good. I, even with talking with him, you know, he, he raises some doubt over that. I still don't know if I'm moved off of my position that it's good for these guys to be doing what they're doing and playing at these clubs in Europe, but it makes you think now, look, I'm not saying that, you know, if all of our world cup roster was currently playing for the sounders, uh, you know, like if it was all Seattle and Minnesota that made up our world cup team, like would I feel good about us. Mm, eh, I don't
2: know. No, no. But um, but we'll see. We're going to see because for me and you, I believe increased talent, regardless of where it's centralized, is the most important thing. And we've got that right now. So yeah. we, we I guess we just have to watch this space and see if yeah. his formula is correct or not.
1: Uh, I'll tell you what. Super quick break, JJ. When we come back, the return. It's been a few weeks. The return of red cards and men of the match. Don't go anywhere. Back now, caught offside. We bring it down the stretch, JJ, with a little red card. Can I go first? Quickly, Super quick here. I, I, suppose, I suppose this is a red card. I don't know who this is for necessarily, but I guess those Arsenal supporters hoping the club would be sold because it's not happening, at least for now. Daniel Eck of Spotify fame had been making a push to buy the club from the Cronkies, and after some conflicting reports, he tweeted this out over the weekend. Inaccurate reports emerged today saying I have not made a bid for Arsenal football club. I think it's important to correct the record this week. An offer was made to both Josh Cronkey and their bankers that included fan ownership representation at board and a golden share for the supporters. They replied that they don't need the money. I respect their decision, but remain interested and available. Should that situation ever change? Uh, so there you have it. The Kroenke's have made it clear we don't need the money and i guess not included in their statement was we don't care that we're hated uh they will continue to own this club for the foreseeable future so interesting Ek, a, a valid effort but it appears at least for now it's going to come up just a bit short
2: interesting uh, choice of language correcting the record is what uh, um, daniel eck uh should do for a lot of the musicians and artists on spotify according to them because that's what they say. Uh, my red card, the UEFA Women's Champions League final, Andrew. I took advice from a fellow countrywoman, an ESPNer, Sligonian Kathleen mcnamee after her appearance on Herc's podcast. She predicted Chelsea to win this one against Barcelona. It did not go that way. Chelsea were down one-nil after 35 seconds. A bizarre opening goal that stemmed from Lika Martin's rattling the crossbar. Didn't get much better from there. 4-0 after 35 minutes. Yikes. Uh, Barcelona were ruthless and scored four goals from their four shots on target. Far too much space afforded to the Catalan side on the break. So a bad weekend for Chelsea in cup finals and a bad weekend for Sligo people making predictions.
1: Man of the match now, JJ. Mine is actually the women of the match. And if what just happened isn't a test case for you and I as human beings, then I don't know what is.
2: We need to do a production meeting.
1: Because everyone... There's this feeling that I am this negative Nancy, this you know this walking doomsdayer, and you're this happy go lucky Irishman. Oh, happy JJ, look at him, happy happy. And Who yet this is that? everyone no thinks, thinks that. it. They no, all they think don't. it. We they all look. think it. And this is the ultimate example of glass half full or glass half empty. You chose to take that Champions League final and make it a red card. I made it my women of the match from the Barcelona perspective. So there's really not much else for me to say. You took it. Uh, you, you twisted it. You made it a negative thing. I saw it as a congratulations to the women of Barcelona for taking Chelsea apart. It was four nil. Uh, what was it in the 37th minute? I mean, yeah. uh, and, and the, the one other thing that I will note for, uh, Barcelona that you did not talk about, cause you, you kind of covered more of the Chelsea side of it. It's interesting because this almost felt like a mirror image of Barcelona's champions league loss from 2019. Um, when they they trailed leon three nil in the first 20 minutes and wound up losing 4-1 okay in this team, they led chelsea three nil in the first 20 minutes and wound up winning 4-0 um so th- this win for barcelona actually snapped leon's five-year winning streak in this competition largest margin of victory since the final switch to a single leg format back in 2010 so congratulations to the women of barcelona as they uh, Barcelona becomes the first club to have both a men's and women's Champions League under their belt. So congratulations uh,
2: to Barca. Well done to them. Uh, my men of the match, Andrew, are the newest inductees to the Premier League Hall of Fame. This is a thing that's happened. We haven't really spoke about it. This feel- I haven't spoken about it because this felt like something to me that you would mock. I can't no, believe you're no, no, putting no. it in this category, this prestige of men of the match. No, no, no. Um, the, the first inductees were Thierry Henry and Alan Shearer. And today, Manchester United have had a a double entry. Uh, Eric Cantona and Roy Keane have been inducted into the Premier League's Hall of Fame. Uh, Cantona said this, I am very happy and very proud, but at the same time, I am not surprised. I would have been surprised not to be elected, uh, which is the the tact that Cantona took. Uh, Keane, just typical Keane. I feel very lucky to be inducted, but I've only been inducted because of the players I've played with, Keane said. Ever the captain, uh, Keane replaced Cantona as captain of Manchester United upon the Frenchman's retirement in ninety seven, and won seven Premier League titles at Old Trafford. At Old Trafford, after joining for a British record of three and a half million pounds sterling in ninety three, he won the FA Cup four times and the Champions League as part of the club's unprecedented treble in nineteen ninety nine. Now, the next question has to be: Who comes in after them? Who is next on the list? Who is going to find their way into this? Premier League Hall of Fame. I would think Dennis Bergkamp would be one of them. Definitely. Um, I think... I mean, Messers... just
1: roll through some of those Manchester United names. You would think Beckham, Scholes, Giggs.
2: Yeah, I think Messers, um, Gerrard and Lampard will certainly be certainly be considered. But I think the first four are the right first four. Um, Cantona, the impact he had on United and on the league. Keane was the best midfielder to ever have played in the league. Thierry Henry, the best goal scorer, and the next best goal scorer, Alan Shearer. So yeah. I, f- I feel I feel that's right. Um, I feel that is just about right. One more thing before we go, Andrew. Mm. Championship playoffs, Barnsley trail 1-0 from Monday's first leg with Andre Ayews goal for Swansea, the only thing separating the Yorkshire men from the Welsh side. And in the other tie, Bournemouth take a one-goal lead up to London for the second leg. Both games on ESPN Plus this Saturday. Brentford Bournemouth at seven 30 in the morning and Swansea Bansley at one 30 PM. If you want to see if Daryl DK oh, can, I
1: so desperately want to see him do something cool. Cause you can see the way the fan base has become obsessed with him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, th- they his, love rise, his rise at that club has been really,
2: really fun to watch. Uh, by the way, they are the most direct team I've seen in about 25 years. It's unbelievable. Andrew, if I get a free kick in modern football inside the opposition half, just inside the opposition half near the halfway line, where's the ball usually going sideways backwards, you know, a short pass. They set up their free kicks to launch them in, uh, from those positions. They're super direct. Their style is not going to change. Uh, um, Alejandro Bedoya took to Twitter to slag off the championship is there anybody out there that still thinks the championship is better than MLS? I'm watching this game and it's like volleyball. Um, he was then put in his place by people who actually watch the championship more than just one playoff game. But There we are.
1: I know you have your feelings on it.
2: Greatest league in the world.
1: <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, this was fun, man. Our thanks to Stephen Mandis. Uh, check out the, the book right now. Um, like we said, it's available starting today. Um, and then some big games, of course, midweek, they continue Liverpool in action in a huge one on Wednesday. It all continues into the weekend. Uh, so it never stops. It just it just never stops, my friend. This was fun. To you, I say... Check you later, phone boy. I'll see you. Take care, my friend. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast.